Cool. So Isaiah 44, 24 to 45, 25. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense who carries out the the words of his servant and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please, he will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue the nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does the work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, why have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretches out the heavens. I marshaled the starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God of and Saviour of Israel. All the makers of idols we put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace 
to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignore all those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what it is. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a saviour, there is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boasts in him. Well, I wonder if you've ever found yourself disagreeing with God. That's a bit of a stark way to put it, but I bet it's probably an experience that most, if not all of us, have had at one time or another. Perhaps you've come across something in the Bible, you've read it there, and it just seems so strange, but perhaps even more than that, it it just seems so wrong. And it just seems to clash with your deepest intuitions about what is right and wrong. And so you you find yourself disagreeing with something that God says in His Word. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. I reckon it's actually quite quite a common experience. And so how should we respond in situations like that? What should we do when we find ourselves disagreeing with God? Uh, Well, tonight, as we continue in our sermon series in Isaiah, we're going to see that uh, we're not the first people to be surprised or even shocked at God's ways and some of the things that He says in His Word. And as we see what God says to them, it's going to help us know how to respond to. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, please do have it open to Isaiah 44, um, and we'll have a look at that together. Now, if you're just joining us tonight, uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, we've seen that Isaiah 40 to 66, this second major chunk of the book of Isaiah, uh, was written hundreds of years before Jesus in about 700 BC. But it was written to uh, people who are living about 150 years in the future from Isaiah's perspective in about 540 BC, to people who were living in exile in Babylon. They were uh, discouraged, they were feeling abandoned in this foreign country, being oppressed by this uh, oppressive empire. But over the past few weeks, we've seen that God has had promised to comfort His people, to bring their exile to an end, and to restore them to Jerusalem, their home city. Now, those same promises are reinforced in our passage today, but God also adds some details about how He's going to do that. And His methods would have seemed pretty shocking to the Israelites who first heard these words from Isaiah. So have a look in your Bibles with me from Isaiah 44, from verse 24, and let's see what it says. Isaiah 44, from verse 24. 
This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. And of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Stop there for the moment. Uh, but notice that it refers to, uh, to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah. And it says that they'll be inhabited and rebuilt. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city, and, Jerusalem, and Judah, that was the kind of area around, so the towns of Judah were the, the scattered uh, towns around Jerusalem. Now, why had Jerusalem and Judah, why had they been turned into ruins? Uh, well, it was because of the Babylonians. You can, you can see them there in green on the map, uh, the mighty Babylonian empire. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that because of Israel's sin and disobedience, God was so patient with them, but over centuries they kept turning their back on God and turning their back on God. Uh, God had, had sent the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment and discipline to turn his people back to him. That's why Judah and Jerusalem, we've just read about, uh, were turned into ruins. But God's people were spared. They were uh, there in exile. And so now that God's people had been humbled by him and they were in exile, God was promising to restore them again. But that raises a huge question. How on earth is God going to do this? Judah is this tiny little kingdom that's now been defeated. Babylon is mighty and huge. How on earth is God going to do this? How's he going to rescue his people from the mighty Babylonian empire? Well, have a look at your Bibles with me at Isaiah 44 and verse 28, where it tells us how he's going to do it. Verse 28, God says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now, at this point, we might be thinking, okay, that that doesn't really mean much to me. Who on earth is this Cyrus guy? We haven't met him before. And you're not alone, you're in good company. Neither had the Israelites. The people who first received this message from Isaiah, they had no idea who Cyrus was. Because here's the thing. Cyrus hadn't even been born yet. Isaiah lived around 700 BC, but remember he was writing for a future generation. And this dude named Cyrus, born around 600 AD, so 100 years after Isaiah, and now known to history as Cyrus the Great, was later to become the founder of the first great Persian empire. So during Isaiah's lifetime, we saw in that map, uh, Babylon seemed unstoppable. But God was predicting through Isaiah that a, a future king would arise who would overthrow Babylon. God's announcing this ahead of time. And it's exactly what happened. Uh, as the Bible tells us, and is confirmed from, later, from, from outside history as well, in 539 BC. Babylon was defeated by Cyrus, king of Persia, And not only did Cyrus defeat Babylon, but he also allowed the exiled Israelites to return home to Jerusalem, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. It was actually recorded in history in a bunch of places, and it's even by what we see outside the Bible. Uh, But the Bible is actually the best and clearest place to get this history. 
Uh, So check out what Ezra chapter 1 says about these exact events. Uh, Isaiah is prophesying this ahead of time. Ezra was written a few hundred years later, reflecting back on it as history. Check it out. Ezra chapter 1 from verse 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, Jeremiah is another prophet who, like Isaiah, predicted these same events before they took place, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it into writing. This is what the king, uh, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. So any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. It's astonishing that something like this would happen, and yet God, the Lord of history, and throughout these chapters, God keeps reminding ourselves how powerful he is. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of history, who's working through the mightiest empires for his own purposes. So let's come back to Isaiah, and look at your Bibles with me, how Isaiah 45 predicts these same events. In Isaiah 45 now, next chapter, verse 1. Isaiah 45, verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations, like Babylon, before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. He's going to release his people. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. So here we see God strengthening Cyrus to subdue Babylon and the surrounding nations, But notice what God calls Cyrus at the start of verse 1. Did you notice that? He calls him the Lord's anointed. Now, that might not initially ring any alarm bells if you're a 21st century Aussie, but for a Jew living in 540 BC, that would be absolutely shocking. It'd be offensive. Because the word anointed there is translating the Hebrew word Mashiach, which in English we usually say as Messiah. That's a title that refers to God's chosen king of his people, Israel. So kings like David and Solomon and Hezekiah, they were all in their own days called Messiah. That was the title that they held. And of course, Jesus, the long-awaited promised king who reigns forever, Jesus now holds that title in perpetuity. Jesus is the Messiah king who rules and saves his people. But here in Isaiah 45, who's being called God's Messiah? The pagan king Cyrus. The king of the Persian Empire who who doesn't even worship the one true God. It's absolutely shocking that someone like him would be given such a title of honor. So why would God do this? Well, that's a question that's directly addressed in verses 4 to 6. So have a look down there in your Bibles with me from verse 4. Check it out. God says, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, Messiah, though you do not acknowledge me, Cyrus. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, Cyrus, though you have not acknowledged me. Why? So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, People may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord 
and there is no other. So here we see God using Cyrus, even though Cyrus doesn't acknowledge God. And more than that, God doesn't just use him, he, he strengthens him to complete that task, even though Cyrus doesn't acknowledge him as the, as the one true God. But why? Why would God do this, even through someone who ignores him? Well, the passage gives us two reasons. The first is in verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. The first reason, he's doing it to save his people, to deliver them from the mighty Babylonians. And the second is in verse 6, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, so that everywhere people may know that there is one God, to reveal his glory and power, to reveal himself as the Lord of history. So you could sum up these verses like this, God strengthens those who don't acknowledge him to achieve his purposes, to save his people and to make himself known to all peoples. God strengthens those who don't acknowledge him to achieve his purposes, to save his people and to make himself known to all peoples. Uh, That's what God did through Cyrus in 539 BC. And that's also exactly what God did through Jesus centuries later. I don't know if you've thought about this, but in the betrayal and execution of Jesus, God was sovereignly working through wicked people who don't acknowledge him to achieve God's purposes. In Acts 2.23, Peter says to the people of Jerusalem, this man, Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Who was it who put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross? It was wicked men. They chose to kill Jesus for their own sinful reasons. And yet at the same time, it all happened according to what? God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God didn't force anyone to do anything they didn't want to do. They acted freely based on their own wicked motives. And yet in the remarkable wisdom and sovereignty of God, they were unwittingly fulfilling God's purposes to save his people and make himself known through the Lord Jesus. And this is made all the more remarkable when you consider that Jesus Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. And Hebrews 1 tells us, it's not just that all things were made by Jesus, but all things are also sustained by Jesus. Every moment that this creation exists is upheld by the powerful word of Jesus. Every molecule, every star system is not self-sufficient, but is upheld by the powerful word of Jesus. So even as those wicked men tortured and crucified him, he was sustaining their every breath and their very existence, even though they didn't acknowledge him. As we already sung tonight, see the king who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. Isn't that remarkable? Unbelievable? God strengthens those who don't acknowledge him to achieve his purposes, to save his people, and make himself known to all peoples. 
But let's be honest, this is one of those moments where you might find yourself tempted to disagree with God. His plan and His methods seem strange, offensive even. The way He works His plans through wicked people who don't acknowledge Him. And you know, that's exactly how the Israelites would have been feeling when they heard that God was going to save them from the Babylonians, not through some mighty Jewish king, but through the pagan King Cyrus. And so in Isaiah 45, God directly addresses that objection. He addresses that temptation that they and we might be feeling to disagree with His methods. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Isaiah 45 from verse 9. God says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. A potsherd just means a shard of broken pottery. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? It's I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. What's God's response? Well, His ways may seem surprising or even offensive, but who are we to quarrel with our Maker? Who are we to question God or or think that we know better than Him? That's a very confronting thing uh, to be told, especially in our society when we're told that, uh, you know, we're so wonderful and clever and we're the center of the universe. God says, who are we? We're broken pop. Shards of pottery to question our maker. Now, of course, this isn't saying that it's wrong to have genuine questions. And it's not even wrong to bring those questions to God. Many people do throughout the pages of Scripture. Even prophets like Jeremiah do. But the key thing that this passage is addressing is not whether or not we have questions, but the attitude that we have in the questions that we bring to God. We should be very cautious about our attitude in doing so, and we should be wary of thinking that we know, thinking that we know better than God. Uh, I'm reminded of Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Uh, Jeremiah 12, verse 1, Jeremiah's confused about, and I th- I'm pretty sure from context, uh, I haven't looked at this in a while, but I think it's about God using the Babylonians, but Je- Jeremiah 12, 1, Jeremiah says to God, you are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak about, uh, with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? So Jeremiah brings his questions to God, but he does so in a spirit of humility, doesn't he? Recognizing that that God knows better than him. You know, the uh, the Babylon Bee isn't what it used to be, uh, and sadly nowadays it's just often ranting about culture wars, uh, but occasionally you see a spark of its former greatness, uh, like this recent headline, Uh, Man just doesn't understand why a God who is infinitely wiser than he would have different opinion from him sometimes. Uh, The article begins, local man wallowed in frustration today while wrestling with the idea that the almighty God 
creator of the universe, with infinitely more wisdom than any human, could possibly have a different opinion than he has. I'm, ra- I'm right about most things, aren't I? Asked the man rhetorically. I consider myself a pretty smart guy. It only stands to reason that God, who's supposed to be smarter than anyone else, would agree with my views on everything, right? Now, of course, the article is satire, but the thing that makes it good satire is that it's exposing something real. So often we have a similar mindset. We come across something in the Bible we disagree with, and our immediate assumption is to think, God, I think you've got this one wrong here. In all seriousness, who are we to think that we know better than the God who made us? It's not just him pulling rank and saying, don't ask questions. It's him saying, I actually formed you and crafted you. Your very brain and your very wiring in your synapses, I designed you. Isaiah 45 is driving us to humility when it comes to God's word. It's not just on the issue of Cyrus and of Jesus and his crucifixion. It could be on any topic. If we read something in the Bible we don't like, it could be something on sexuality or gender or something else. It's a warning for us not to jump to the conclusion of, wow, God's word must be wrong or outdated here. But to actually start with the assumption, well, God is the maker of the universe. If he's literally the one who designed my brain and sustains my every breath and upholds my very being, Maybe I should give him the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he's talking about. You know, we don't often think about this, but most of our intuitions and our assumptions and our deeply held beliefs are actually heavily shaped by the culture around us. And if we'd been born even 50 years ago, or even today in a different country, our deeply felt intuitions about gender and sexuality or any other number of issues would actually be completely different. Although our intuitions feel strong, they're a very, actually a very inaccurate guide to what's right and wrong, to what's ultimately true. It's a really humbling thought. But it's just reality if you look at the scope of human history. Our culture changes all the time on questions of morality. And when we swim in those cultural waters, we are heavily, even as Christians, we're heavily shaped by our culture. But so how crazy would we be to say that God must be wrong because He doesn't align with our intuitions? Which if we simply lived 50 years ago, would be completely different anyway. What seemed perfectly right just a few decades ago in Australia now seems deeply wrong in that same culture. But God's Word has never changed. God's truth doesn't shift with cultures. And so it's kind of a comforting fact in one sense. We shouldn't be surprised or discouraged when we come across things in God's Word that clash with our cultural upbringing. If you worship a God who always agrees with you, you're not actually worshipping a true God, the true God of the Bible. You're worshipping an idealized version of yourself. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Now, hear me really clearly. Uh, This doesn't mean that we should just blindly accept whatever we read. Not at all. But it does mean that as we come with the things that we're wrestling with and questioning with, we come with an attitude of humility where we're giving the God the benefit of the doubt when we find ourselves disagreeing with Him. 
I was having a conversation with a dear brother earlier this week on justice, and I was so encouraged by it. He's like, there's stuff that I'm really wrestling with God's word, and I still don't see how these things fit. But I'm just going to keep wrestling with that and thinking it through. I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to keep wrestling with it. I'm so encouraged by that. Let's bring our questions to God and keep wrestling. We can keep trusting God's surprising methods. That was true for the Israelites two and a half thousand years ago when God announced he was going to use Cyrus for his purposes. And that's true of Jesus too. You know, no one knows exactly what Jesus looks like. There was no photographer around and his biographers don't give us any detailed descriptions of his appearance. Long long hair or short hair, we don't know. Beard or no beard, well, I have my strong suspicions on that one, but must say we don't know for sure. But what I'm about to show you is the earliest known drawing of Jesus on the cross. It's hard to know exactly what date it was drawn. Most scholars guess around 200 AD, but here it is. It's pretty hard to make out. It's scratched into a plaster wall in Rome a long time ago, so it's a little worse for the wear. So here's a stone trace rubbing, uh, a rubbing trace that helps you see it a little bit more clearly. It pictures a person on a cross with a donkey's head, naked buttocks exposed. It's the earliest known drawing of Jesus on the cross. And it's mocking him. The people who drew this were thinking, what a fool. A crucified criminal, naked and ashamed, he dies on a cross. And beside Jesus on the cross, there's a man looking up at him. And the writing in Greek says, Alexandros worships his God. Have you ever been mocked by others for following Jesus? You're not alone. We don't know anything else about Alexandros. He was just an average bloke from Rome who worshipped Jesus. The only thing we know about him from history is that he worshipped Jesus and he was mocked for it. And you can imagine the mockery, can't you? You worship a crucified criminal? How embarrassing, how foolish, how stupid. Don't you know that people who are crucified by the Romans, it's not only torture them but publicly shame them? To expose them naked to the public while they slowly died? Don't you know that the Roman Empire already conquered this Jewish nobody? Why would you worship him? And yet that is how God chose to step into history. That's how God chose to achieve his purposes, to save his people, and to make himself known to all people. The message of the cross seems foolish to our world. It did back then and it does today. In our passage, it says... In 44.25, God overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. And and that same idea is picked up in 1 Corinthians 1. Check it out. 1 Corinthians 1 from verse 18. It says, the message of the cross, that's the gospel. Message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You see, the apparent weakness and folly of the cross is not a bug. It's a feature. It's how God was pleased to save us through the apparent foolishness of the cross so that it'll be clear that it's His power and not human wisdom that gets the glory. And it's not just the gospel that appears weak and foolish to the world, it's the church too. You know, have you ever thought, man, why is the church so lame? If we could just be more impressive, if we could just be more cool, if we could just be more relevant to the culture around us, then maybe then the church would grow. But no, look at how 1 Corinthians 1 continues. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, God didn't get stuck with the outcasts of the world in his church, the weak and the, uh, the foolish and the unimpressive and the uncool. No, he chose them. The weakness and folly of the church isn't a bug, it's a feature. And why? He does it to shame the wise and shame the strong. He does it so that no one may boast before him and think that they've earned their place by human impressiveness. It's to expose human impressiveness as hollow and empty and to make it clear that he alone deserves the glory. Because who would have thought of saving people through a way like that? A crucified man on the cross. And if that's true, brothers and sisters, how crazy would it be for us to try to build a church based on human impressiveness or human wisdom? No, like the Israelites in Isaiah's day, we need to trust God's surprising methods. For the Israelites in Isaiah's day, they needed to trust that he was working through the pagan King Cyrus to save his people and make himself known. And for us today, we need to trust that God's doing the same thing even though the, through the apparent weakness and folly of the cross and the apparent weakness and folly of the church. It'll feel hard at times. We're going to feel the pressure from the culture around us big time. Not just from outside of us, but even inside of us. The ways that the, our culture has shaped our ways of thinking and feeling is going to put pressure on us. It's going to lead us to want to disagree with God's word and think that we know better. But when we find ourselves disagreeing with God, Isaiah 45 is reminding us that God knows what he's doing. We can trust him. It's he who made the earth and he made each one of us. And his plan has been working out for thousands of years. God knows what he's doing and he knows us better than we know ourselves. So brothers and sisters, Let's humbly trust God's surprising methods. 
Let's trust God's word even when it doesn't line up with our intuitions. Let's embrace the counterintuitive gospel message of Christ crucified, even though it's offensive to some. Let's not sugarcoat the gospel or leave out parts we think people won't like. And let's trust that God will continue to build his church. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we praise you because you are the Lord of history. You are all wise and all powerful. And Father, uh, we thank you for giving in the pages of Scripture uh, such a clear revelation of you declaring things and announcing things hundreds of years before they happened so that we would know without a doubt that you are the God who is in control. Uh, Father, we confess that sometimes we find ourselves struggling with some of the things we see in your word. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can bring our questions to you in humility before you, that we can wrestle with these questions together, that we can test them against your word. Father, please give us humility. In a culture uh, that tells us uh, to trust our own instinct, to just look inside our heart and, and obey whatever we uh, hear coming from inside ourselves. Father, help us to be wiser than that. Help us not to, to give in to the wisdom of this world that is really foolishness. And help us to look to Jesus, who though he was apparently weak and foolish, actually demonstrated through the cross that he is the most wise and powerful Messiah, King that we could ever ask for. Father, help us to fix our eyes on him and trust him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.